Welcome to Dangerous Christianity with Dr. Christopher Rodkey, where we explore new ways of being Christian that go against the grain, stands up against the church when it's evil, speaks truth to power, and reclaims the Bible as a radical message of hope, liberation, and justice. Dr. Rodkey is pastor of St. Paul's United Church of Christ in Dallastown, Pennsylvania, and leads the sacred profane community, a post-faith gathering for those seeking to nurture a literate and misfit geeky, sometimes sneaky, as well as a queer-affirming and beer-affirming spirituality. All information mentioned throughout the program is listed in the show notes. And now, please welcome Dr. Christopher Rodney. Our scripture reading is taken from Luke chapter 11, verses 33 to 54. Jesus continued, No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar, but on the lampstand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But if it is not healthy, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, consider whether the light in you is not darkness. If then your whole body is full of light with no parts of it in darkness, it will be as full of light as when a lamp gives you light with its rays. While he was speaking, a Pharisee invited him to dine with him. So he went in and took his place at the table. The Pharisee was amazed to see that he did not wash, first wash his hands, uh, first wash before dinner. Then the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? So give for alms those things that are within and see everything will be clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and herbs of all kind and neglect justice and the love of God. It is these you ought to have practiced without neglecting the others. Woe to you Pharisees for your love to have the seat of honor in the synagogues and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces. Woe to you for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without realizing it. One of the lawyers answered him, teacher, when you say these things, you insult us too. And he said, Woe also to you lawyers, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not lift a finger to ease them. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your ancestors killed, and so you are witnesses and approve of the deeds of your ancestors, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute. So this generation may be charged with the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be charged against this generation. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves and you hindered those who are entering. But when he went outside, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile toward him and cross-examined him about many things. 
laying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Right before this part of Jesus' speech, which we did last week as we've been going through this verse by verse uh, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus emphasizes that the point of religion is not the messenger or the vessel, but the point of the, of the message is the word of God, that you can bless and praise Jesus all you want, but what really matters is what you do and how you are to other people, particularly those who are poor and oppressed. Jesus' story of the lamp in the eye is about purity of the insides. Much of the religion of the time was obsessed with purity, and this is something that comes up several times in the Gospel of Luke. And purity rituals don't do anything but make you feel better. What counts is what is on the inside. Your hands may be filthy, but you are pure if your insides radiate good light for others to follow. So the next story is a little obscure and perplexing, but I think it will make sense if we keep in mind the sequence of teachings happening here as we're going through it. A Pharisee invites Jesus into his home, which might be a gesture of hospitality. It might not be. It's not clear at this time, but Jesus accepts the invitation. And the Pharisee was amazed that Jesus didn't wash his hands before eating, as was the custom, particularly among the Pharisees at that time. Jesus calls him a fool for believing that what is pure on the outside is what makes you pure on the inside. The washing of hands before a meal wasn't really about uh, hygiene as it was more about ritual purity. But woe to you. You spend lots of times with your dainty flowers and herbs, but you treat people badly. One of the dinner party guests interrupts Jesus and says that he's offending him. Jesus says to him that you erect tombs to the prophets whom your ancestors killed. Now what Jesus is talking about here is that you might make it look like you honor the prophet by building the temple, uh, building a tomb for the prophet, but you're really honoring your ancestors who killed the prophet by commemorating the tomb. This is a little confusing in the scripture. I hope you're following. When you build up the graves of the prophets, who are you really honoring? The prophet or the people who killed the prophets? If you really wanted to honor the prophet, you would be acting differently. Jesus says you're honoring your ancestors by keeping the word of God proclaimed by the prophets sealed in the tomb to keep it dead and keep it put away from public. And then Jesus says, you all have the blood of your ancestors on your hands. Now, Jesus is not saying that children are responsible for the deeds of their grandparents. But what Jesus is saying is that when you continue to make a mockery of the word of God by containing it in tombs and in rituals, you have the blood of the prophets on your hands. And this is, this is the fascinating line in verse 51 that I have on your screen highlighted. So that this generation may be charged with all the blood of the prophets since the foundation of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Now, Abel, of course, is the first murder victim of the Bible. As you probably know the story, he was murdered by his brother Cain. 
I think it's one of the most important stories in the Bible. But who was Zechariah? That's a more complicated question. There's some debate about who Jesus is referring to here, but I think there's one theory that scholars have that makes a lot of sense, um, which is that he's referring to the Zechariah who was the last murder victim of the Old Testament, right? So Jesus is talking about the first murder victim of the Old Testament and the last murder victim of the Old Testament. Zechariah was stoned to death in the Old Testament. So the blood of the beginning of humanity to the most recent murder in the Bible is on the hands of those who hold back the word of God, who try to capture it in a neat package because it's easier to leave it in the package than be, than be challenged by letting it out. Holding back the word of God not only holds, holds it back, but it perpetuates violence. So long as people think that God wants violent, people will be violent. The idea that God does not want violence is too difficult and dangerous for, to those whose business is to make the packages which ensnare or trap the word of God. People want war because they make profit off, off of war. Another thing that's interesting about this theory about who Zechariah is here as the last murder victim of the Old Testament is that at the time of Jesus, a significant tomb was built just below the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, a monolith that was carved out of the mountain, which slopes down into the Kidron Valley. And who is the tomb for? It's for Zechariah. Today, it's still called the tomb of Zechariah. Zechariah, the Bible tells us, tried to censure the political authorities and told people that they were equating religion with the pagan government and that this was an affront to God. He, then, he was then stoned to death while serving his priestly function in the temple. The legend that, of Zechariah that is not recorded in the Bible, but is part of Jewish tradition is this. So this is not in the Bible, but this is part of the tradition. After Zechariah was killed, his blood remained on the floor for a little while, and the blood be, started to boil. An Assyrian bodyguard of King Nebuchadnezzar saw this, and he thought that this was a signal that that uh, whatever was making this boil, the God or, or spirit that's making the blood boil, wanted, wanted more blood. So he went out and killed 940,000 people, including children, believing that Zechariah's blood was cursed and was telling him to kill people. So after killing all these people, the bodyguard went back to the temple to present himself before the blood. And he saw that the blood was still on the ground boiling the bodyguard yelled at the blood, how many more must I kill just to please you? And as the story goes, the blood stopped boiling. I guess it was then that they decided to clean up the boiling blood before it changed, changed its mind. So I don't know if you know this, this but uh, this is where we get the phrase, your blood was boiling, or my blood was boiling. The blood of Zechariah is on the hands of the religious hypocrites, Jesus says. The Assyrian bodyguard who thought the blood was commanding him to kill nearly one million people into the slaughter, as the story goes, it didn't seem to be enough. The point is that the boiling blood wasn't demanding blood, it was demanding a ceasing of the bloodshed 
It was saying the opposite. And when we were more, and we were, while we're more than willing to keep on killing and keep doing violence to appease some sense of necessity, in the end, what the spirit behind the story, uh, the boiling blood in the story, was the opposite of violence. It's almost like those who killed Zechariah wanted to keep believing in the phenomena of the boiling blood so that they would do the opposite of its demands just to keep it around, just to believe in something supernatural. It appeases my sense of wanting to do violence. I hope you're following this a little bit. Jesus is saying you all love to build tombs for ideas and tombs for prophecy that are easier and less challenging when they are dead than alive, and then act as if you're performing some act of piety to the tradition or respect to the one who has been killed. This is sort of a sophisticated analogy that Jesus is making, and he's calling out the hypocrisy here. But I'm sort of stuck on the story of Jesus washing in his hands. Maybe it's because we're during a pandemic, but Jesus refused to wash his hands. We have to put ourselves back in Jesus's time. The hand-washing routine that was done by the Pharisees was probably a little bit more complicated than what other Jews might have done. And they would probably fully immerse their arms or up to their elbows or even higher as a ritual demonstration of their purity before eating. Typically, they would be all using the same water. So whatever germs were really on their hands were quite likely to get on each other's hands by sharing the water. And many of these rituals had a practical purpose. They might not have understood germs at that time, but they likely understood that washing your hands before you eat is probably a good idea. But the reason why there was such disgust with Jesus not washing his hands wasn't necessarily because he was a bad guest or that he wasn't doing the ritual, but that he had, been, he had just come from touching sick people and touching poor people. In other words, their criticism of Jesus or their abject disgust with Jesus was an extension of their disgust and their criticism of the people that he was helping. The people he was helping uh, were associated with impurity. They invite Jesus into their home, maybe not necessarily expecting him to follow all the religious customs that they specifically had, but uh, but they all shared a sense of disgust for the sick and the poor and those who were deemed to be sinners, common people who they looked down upon. Jesus was touching them and healing them and helping them. And then he comes into their home and refuses to purify himself because Jesus refuses to dignify the practice of judging others. And one of them says that he's offended that Jesus won't dignify their beliefs by acting as if people, uh, the people he has helped are unclean. He doesn't sell them out or appease them by washing his hands. At this point in the story of the Gospel of Luke, we're hearing Jesus be invited into a, the home of someone who belonged to a political faction. And he tells them to their face that their spirituality of purity is predicated or dependent upon a judgment of others when this others are the pure, the poor, the sick, and the oppressed. The women, the marginalized, the prostitutes, the sinners, the tax collectors. Their religion requires oppression and poverty because there, if there is no oppression or poverty, there's no religion. 
the entire basis of the beliefs is built upon spiritual superiority and superiority of cleanliness. Jesus is selling, saying right to their face, that's wrong. He's speaking truth to power here. And I think that it's mean, and I also think the story is a little funny here when the guy says, you're insulting us. In 21st century terms, we'd say that that guy's being a snowflake, right? You're insulting us, he says. You're right, Jesus says. I am insulting the religious practices which give you every sense of identity that you are better than someone else. And he says that their own religion calls out what they're doing is wrong. It isn't even that the religion is wrong. It's the way they're practicing that religion is wrong. But they build their lab ideas around the assumption of their own superiority over other people. I hope you're following this story. The philosopher Soren Kierkegaard taught that religion always goes wrong when it is motivated by resentment, and religion usually ends up getting motivated by resentment at some point in its history. By that, Kierkegaard meant that if your religious belief is based on a spirituality of pointing out what you are not out of a sense of superiority of yourself over others, or that if your religious belief has a primary function of judgment over others as a means of emphasizing your own spiritual high place, you're doing it wrong. Kierkegaard taught, using the words of Jesus, resentment breeds resentment. Resentment is not ever life-giving. Resentment is something that never leads to beauty in life. In the story, instead they keep interrogating Jesus, hoping to trick him into saying something that would get him in trouble with the authorities. There's a whole lot about this story about hand washing and not washing your hands. It's true that Jesus did not wash his hands because his hands were with the poor, the sick, and the oppressed. The touch of those individuals remain with Jesus and are not forgotten or sold out to the ruling class. So Jesus did not wash his hands. But you should wash your hands without resentment. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, so be it. Thanks for joining me for Dangerous Christianity, which is my sermon podcast from St. Paul's United Church of Christ in Dallastown, Pennsylvania. This is Pastor Chris Rodkey. If you'd like to give a donation to the church, you can uh, find the instructions in the show notes for the podcast. Or you can email a tax-deductible donation to St. Paul's United Church of Christ, which is an open and affirming ministry, at 205 West Main Street, Dallastown, Pennsylvania, 17313. And feel free to contact me directly if you have prayer requests or concerns or thoughts to share. Thanks, and have a great day. Thank you for listening to Dangerous Christianity. For more information about how to get involved in the movement, how to contact Dr. Christopher Rodkey, or where to find information regarding his preaching itinerary, publications, or how to make a contribution to his ministry, please refer to the listed show notes. Dr. Rodkey, again, would like to thank all of his listeners for continuously supporting and tuning into his work and message. Thank you.